Lord just reading today in Matthew. I think most of us maybe read this passage within this week, just how, just when a child asks his father for a, an egg or for uh, just some bread, Lord, you don't give him a snake, you don't give him a scorpion, Lord, you give him those things. And how much more does our father, our good and our better father, know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Lord, we just want more of you. We want more of your spirit on us, Lord. Just where you breathed on the, the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit. And sometime later, you said, go and wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem. And there in the upper room, as they waited on you, Lord, you came upon them, Lord, and you would come upon them time after time in their ministry, Lord, just the epi of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we just pray for the power of the Spirit upon us, Lord. Just torrents of living water, just upon those who would believe tonight, upon those who want to be spent for your kingdom, Lord. Lord, who don't want one minute of their life to be wasted, Lord. Just give us more of you that we might comprehend these deep things of you, Lord. We might understand that we might be able to press in in the midst of a hard schedule and just trials going on in our life and just uh, things in the background just whispering, how come you're not giving attention to this and you left your kids alone tonight and this and that and Lord, that we just have your peace to be able to just press in right now and really just seek you, Lord. We pray this would be much more than information tonight. Lord, we pray this would be more than just head knowledge, Lord. But Lord, as we just thoroughly study who you are, Lord, you just burn these things in our heart, Lord, and it would just produce boldness in us to, to go and proclaim the name of Jesus. We just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys go ahead and grab a seat. So, uh... Just want to give some glory to the Lord real quick. A lot of you have been wondering how my weekend went, and God was just very faithful to bring the word to the men at uh, the men's retreat. Got had Will and Jason there, and uh, Troy and Avery made it up a little bit on Saturday night. And uh, but uh, other than that, I think it was like 85 men from Corvallis that were there, and just God brought the word by His Spirit, and it was just a great time. And then uh, was really anxious about speaking at my grandma's memorial service to a lot of relatives that proclaim the name of Jesus, but just actually their lives are way counter that. And uh, just uh, prayed like crazy at the men's retreat over that. <laughs> and uh, it was cool when I pulled into Klamath Falls on Sunday morning, just the Holy Spirit just brought peace. And I had a peace all the way up through preaching and uh, the power of the Lord was brought and truth was given to my family that like, hey, here's what the scriptures say. If your life doesn't line up with the scriptures, gosh, you are elevating yourself above God. And, and uh, at least you know now, <laughs> if, you don't, if you're not measured up with the Lord right now, at least you know, hey, okay, you're following your own thing. There's no hope in that, but there's hope in the Lord. And so God uh, brought the truth. No one really responded to the gospel call, but that doesn't mean that there won't be fruit later on in, in life. So I just, a lot of you've been wondering how it went and uh, it went very well. So I'm glad to be back with you guys though. Um, my family in Prineville. 
And a um, couple, I know there's some questions. If you didn't get the email, there were some questions about like the homework. I'm real sorry about that. Um, the packet that you have uh, that says discipleship, it uh, used to be called the fundamentals packet. And it was something that John Wang handed out clear back when I was in uh, high school. And I just always known it as this fundamentals packet. But the sheet that I printed out for it that was already designed said discipleship. And so I kept referring to it as the wrong thing. So sorry about that. Uh, but that's the uh, packet that we're just going along as, uh, as we're done with each topic. Um, just as we're done with the topic, be done with that section in that packet. So we'll be done next week with um, the Bible section of the school. And uh, so if you could just have that read, I think that's all that needs to be done. There's nothing to fill out on that section of the discipleship packet. Um, also, some of you uh, have probably placed your order for the Paul Tripp book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Uh, and so nothing has to be read this week for that uh, as of tonight, but hopefully you'll get that book uh, within a couple days and you can have chapter one read. Um, and uh, depending on some time that we'll have at the end of each class, we might be able to discuss some of that. And, uh, and then also by next week, have that Spurgeon first chapter read in the Steve Miller book, Spurgeon on Leadership. Also, uh, by tonight, you should have had Matthew 1 through 8 read. And um, the idea is that by the time we're done with school of ministry in uh, the end of May, we'll have read through the New Testament together. So if you've got a Bible reading plan right now that you're just like charging through, um, what's that? Throw it out. Yeah. Um, you can like kind of mark that part off of the calendar and be like, okay, I already read John, you know, since we've begun the school and those types of things. Um, but the idea also was that we'd kind of be on the same page in the word that we're going through and the Holy Spirit would be ministering to our hearts um, just together as we're going through. So, and then also that uh, uh, blog or um, blog, uh, thank you. I've been calling it current event just because it's kind of updated blogs that are current, you know. Um, just a paragraph, uh, basically um, know that you're busy, so I don't expect like a full you know, 30-page essay or something like that. Um, and uh, if you have another blog that you're reading, like Lindsay's really into Kari Patterson's blog, um, you can do one of those every now and then, but I'd, I'd like to kind of keep it from a pastoral perspective. Um, so Gospel Coalition, CalvaryChapel.com, or if there's a sermon that you listen to that week, you could do something like write up something about the sermon. And then every now and then you could do like a, a Kari Patterson blog or something, but... Uh, I'd like to keep it a little more um, pastoral in a sense. So, or if there's one that you're just like, hey, I know I did one last week, but this is actually all about being a pastor's wife or something or whatever. It's like, okay, but um, trying to branch out a little bit and give you some of the equipping that we've been getting on a weekly basis as well. Uh, and then our prayer times, prayer homework, uh, two hours a week, encouraging you to foster those disciplines in your life. And, and of course, someone could say, only two hours, and you're absolutely right, right? We don't want to just cap it or be like, two hours is spiritual. And, you know, um, but hey, uh, just the, the reality is, is that a lot of us need to grow in our prayer lives. And I think it was Oswald Chambers that said, you know, that it's just a travesty to try to minister for the Lord that you don't even know. 
you know, and we want to know the Lord and spending time with him and spending time in his word. And so, uh, so just growing in, in two hours, if you do six hours, praise God, love that, right? And, uh, but uh, just at least two hours, striving to develop that discipline in our life and uh, counting the pulse as part of that uh, two hours. Is there any questions about any of that? Oh, I'm sorry. We'll go ahead, but then I thought of a question that people have been having, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, no book reports or anything like that. Just, uh, you know, as you're going through, highlight the stuff that, that ministers to you. And then if we get a chance to discuss, uh, we can discuss all that. Um, oh, some people were asking, what are the doctrine questions? Uh, that's at the end of your worksheet that you got tonight. Oh, have we handed those out yet? So the doctrine questions are the questions that we discuss at the end of the night based on what was just taught. And if you're not here uh, and you have to listen to the teaching, then fill those out at home. Um, And uh, if you're here, you don't need to do any homework because we'll basically discuss it together. So was there anything else there? I don't have a syllabus in front of me, but uh, I think that's about... So if you're listening to CSN while you're working out or something like that or whatever, if you're listening to Chuck Smith or what's that? It doesn't matter who. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's in place of a blog. And um, that's kind of similar to like a Kari Patterson blog or something like that. if the teaching is, you know, if it's more on like children obey your parents, uh, I, I'd prefer the teaching that you're listening to be more like a ministerial context about being in ministry. Alistair Begg is doing those all the time on CSN, um, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's pretty simple. It's like uh, one week we'll do God, right. the doctrine of God, and that's like chapter one. And that'll be... Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's pretty self-explanatory for the most part. I won't have you do like, you know, Trinity if we're talking about creation or something, which we really won't have much of creation this year. Although we could have Johnny do a lesson because he's a biology teacher. And he did that once for our Truth 101 class. So, well, we have uh, probably a good hour teaching in front of us. And then we'll take a break for snacks and uh, stretch. And then we'll come back and do uh, some, some questions and some current events and uh, that kind of stuff. So it's good to see all of you. I'm excited about this. I don't know about you guys, but I was excited just like, you know, I'm going through the men's retreat, and I look over, and Will's there, and he's got his discipleship packet. Like, he brought it to the men's retreat with him, and, you know, uh, hearing of some of you on, like, your prayer times, you know, and uh, Jill writing about her current event, how it was going to be. Oh, you didn't do it? <laughs> because it was, yeah, yeah, she was like, I'm writing a magazine article here, yeah. Oh, man, I've got to write an article for the late, or for the Prineville paper, I forgot about that, so. Better get that done. I'm going to have to miss this class. <laughs> um, 
Oh, but I was reading um, 1 Timothy chapter 4 today, and uh, Paul tells Timothy in verse 13, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. And, uh, you know, in this, we're just giving attention to doctrine for a good 14 weeks or so. Uh, And then in a little while, uh, in verse 16, he says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Isn't that exciting? Just as we have a heart for evangelizing this community, when we take heed to doctrine, uh, we're going to be saved and those who would hear us would be saved. So uh, pretty exciting. Um, Tonight's teaching is on the canon of scriptures. Did everybody get that? Uh, The canon of scripture. This was from my little trip to Tennessee in the Civil War battlefields. (laughs) I'll try not to do too many puns about canons. Try. (laughs) Oh, my Lanta, yes. Not Atlanta, it was in, uh, okay, never mind. Um, Okay, so who can remember two key passages dealing with inspiration? Don't look at your notes. Oh, could you hit, could you, okay. Two key passages with uh, dealing with inspiration. Anybody? From last week. The big kind of two that we, that we touched on. Well, you know John 3.16? That's like the, right? So now it's 2 Timothy 3.16. Jason, what were you going to say? Okay, do you know what it says? Yeah? There you go, okay. All scripture is given by inspiration or literally God breathed and is what profitable for yeah that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped right uh, for every good work and then uh, someone said the other one yep you remember what it said what was the basic gist of it you don't have to have it memorized don't do, I said don't look at it. What's wrong with you people? Okay, who wants to read it? Kenny, read it out. Knowing this first, that no prophecy in Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, cool. So, uh, bibliology. Inspiration is the key to bibliology. Remember, we looked at last week. Uh, we're going to talk about the canon tonight. And in discussing canonicity, we need to address two questions. First of all, historically, what is the process by which the books of Scripture were collected and recognized as authoritative? Two, theologically, is the canon complete as we have it? Uh, Some definitions here. The literal meaning... Uh, of canon is from canon in the Greek, K-A-N-O-N, and kana in the Hebrew. It has meanings of rod or reed or concluding, measuring rod or yardstick. So literally it means a yardstick. Uh, the figurative meaning of canon is that which is measured 
or that which conforms to a standard. And the theological meaning, see there, is that the recognition that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are the authoritative standard for our faith and practice. The recognition that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are the authoritative standard for our faith and practice. Um, figurative meaning. Some different views on the canon. Different views on the canon. The first one is the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view, or the stretched view. Okay, Roman Catholic theology embraces three equally legitimate source of authority. Okay, the first one is the scriptures themselves. The scriptures themselves. And then they have the magisterium. The magisterium is a body of tradition accumulated through the centuries that interpret the scriptures and state the church's official doctrine. And the third big authority is the Pope speaking ex cathedra. The Pope speaking ex cathedra, which means from the chair or from the cathedral. On these rare occasions, the Pope is speaking with the authority of God. And I believe that is currently the Catholics believe it is everything that is said by the Pope is the word of God. Okay. Um, I didn't have the video loaded up. I totally forgot. But um, when we did the doctrine series, we went around and interviewed people in town and just what, what do you know about the, this and the, that? And, and what do you know about the scriptures and how are they compiled and this and that? And uh, we were interviewing some guys up at the viewpoint. And we went to interview a guy on a moped, and uh, he told us we were going to hell, uh, that he was Catholic, and that uh, we've deviated from the true church, and that, uh, that his authority was actually the Pope speaking ex cathedra, the magisterium, and finally the scriptures. And so because we held to the scriptures and didn't hold to the other things, we weren't in the true church and we're going to hell. Uh, and uh, he wouldn't let us videotape him saying that, though. Um, the so that was the uh, Roman Catholic view. We'll speak about them a little bit tonight. Uh, then we have the liberal Protestant view, or the naturalistic view. And it was interesting. We were up at the Subtle Lake Camp, which is a United Methodist campground, and you know they've got uh, the Buddhist or the Buddhist prayer flags and all these weird books in the bookshelf and the prayer labyrinth that Will went to check out that is man's... Okay, anyways, um, we're not talking about that now anyways. Uh, but this different view, the liberal Protestant, the naturalistic view, which says the Bible is a human book, so the canon is simply a human invention designating certain books to be divine. Then there's the neo-Orthodox view or the encounter view. Like the liberal view, the neo-Orthodox view believes the process of canonicity was entirely human. The Bible thus has no inherent authority. However, the Bible becomes the word of God and thus authoritative or canonical 
whenever the reader spiritually encounters Christ in its writings, okay? And you didn't get that? Okay, so it's human, all right? Um, but they, you know, as you're reading, something might really hit you, and then the Lord is uh, speaking with authority. Then there's authority in it, but there's a lot of problems with that. One is different authorities for different people, and it kind of goes back to the inspiration and inerrancy study last week. Um, finally, the neo, or excuse me, the evangelical view, which is us, the recognition view saying the biblical writings were authoritative as soon as they were written because they are inspired from God. They were recognized in a historical process to be canonical. So we simply recognized that it was already authoritative and the standard, okay? Here's some correct and uh, incorrect views, okay? Uh, incorrect view, the church is the determiner of the canon, but really, the correct view would be the church is the discoverer of the canon. Incorrect, the church is the mother of the canon. Correctly, the church is child of the canon. Incorrectly, the church is magistrate of the canon. Too fat. Don't worry. Don't worry if you skip it. We got all it all it's all right here for you. So um Church is the magistrate of the canyon. Really, the church is the minister of the, of the canon, of the standard. The church is the regulator of the canon would be wrong. The church is recognizer of the canon would be correct. The church is judge of the canon, wrong. The church is witness of the canon, right. Church is master of the canon, Really, the church is the servant of the canon. Give you guys a second to write that down. Go for it. So the canon is um, the compilation of the books of the Bible that you have right now, 66 books that has been recognized to be authoritative and profitable for doctrine. So, uh, so this is the canon. This is our standard. This is the authority. Okay. Um, now, the thing is, is that there's been other compilations. Other people will say, well, this should be the canon. It's got eight more books, like the Catholic Bible, right? Or, no, it should only have one, one book in it, okay? So it's really the library of the books that we have that... Uh, are recognized as authority. And what we're talking about here is people out there would say that what we did was we made this and we determined what books, um, uh, we determined, uh, let's see, that, that wouldn't be the right way to put it. Oh yeah, that'd be, the wrong, that'd be the wrong way. The church is the determiner of the canon when really we just discover what is already authoritative. Okay, so we don't make it authoritative. We just recognize that it is authoritative. And we're going to see why. We're, we're going to see why that is um, tonight. Uh, maybe this will help. So this is all comparing and contrasting, right? So we didn't make this up. We're not the mother of the canon. We're on the submissive end of it. 
Um, we're not the ruler over it. Um, we serve it. Okay. Um, Josh McDowell said, it's important to note that the church did not create the canon. It did not determine which books would be called scripture, the inspired word of God. Instead, the church recognized or discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. Stated another way, a book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. It's important to note that the writings of scripture were canonical or or authoritative the moment they were written down. Scripture was scripture when the pen touched the parchment. Okay? We didn't, as the church, make it authoritative. So how was the Old Testament formed? The Old Testament became canonical the moment it was written. The moment it was written. It was recognized as complete no later than 400 B.C. Our present Hebrew Bible contains a threefold division of the Old Testament books. You have the law the prophets, and the writings, okay? You might have a heading there that says the closing of the Old Testament canon. The period of Old Testament revelation has ceased, okay? We don't have prophets walking around today that are still Old Testament prophets. The period of the Old Testament revelation has ceased. The prophets were the means for Old Testament revelation, as you can see in Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 18, among many passages. Jesus declared the Old Testament prophetic period to be over when John the Baptist came. Jesus says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So it was at that time in Luke 16 that Jesus ended the Old Testament prophetic era with John the Baptist. Although the actual writings of canonical scripture ceased at 400 BC. Does that make sense? So John was the last prophet, but he didn't write anything down. Uh, No one actually wrote anything down for 400 years before him. The Old Testament canon is complete today, just as it was in Christ's day. Jesus and the New Testament writers treat it as complete. The New Testament writers use the term scripture without explanation, definition, or qualification implying the scriptures were known, established entity. And that's kind of cool to think about, that uh, when Jesus was walking, he had the canon of the Old Testament. He had it, it was there, it was authoritative, it was like he could refer to it, okay? Um, 
The New Testament quotes from every section of the Old Testament, profusely calling it scripture. It does not quote from every book, though. While this does not establish the inspiration of the books from which quotes are taken, this pattern is useful for showing the parameters of the Old Testament as corresponding to our present Hebrew canon. The Jews treated it as complete, which was important. In Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, What advantage then has the Jew, or what's the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So for the Jews to recognize, like, it's done. Old Testament era, done. They recognized it was complete. It's good that they recognized that because they were the custodians of the scriptures. That next blank is, Jews are seen as the custodians of, of scripture, a role that they took very seriously. Therefore, their opinions of the parameters of the canon should be disregarded only when there's contrary, overwhelming contrary evidence. Uh, So the question is, with what we have today, should the Apocrypha, should the Jewish Apocrypha be added to our Old Testament canon? The Apocrypha, Lindsay, do you have any chapstick? Yes. I'm an addict. Do you know when the Old Testament was considered canonized by the Jews? Because 400 BC, and it said when Jesus was on the scene, it was already considered canonized. Right. Do you know at what time they decided, okay, this is the end of the prophets? I don't know. No, I don't know. Would you mind researching that and letting us know? Um, I'm not sure if Jesus was saying something totally new there or if he was saying something that was like recognized, you know, um, but yeah, good question. Hey guys. Yes. No, no, that's just old Testament. Cause then we see in the new Testament, that there are prophets and the gift of prophecy. And Ephesians 4 talks about that as well, um, that they're given for the equipping of the saints actually as well. So, um, but that's another, I don't know if you were here last week when I mentioned that we're going to actually read a Wayne Grudem article about modern, like prophecy today and testing it with the word of God and the importance of that. So not sure when that'll be, maybe it'll be sooner than later since it keeps coming up. But no, it doesn't mean that, God's done away with prophets, just that the Old Testament period was done. Now the, now the New Testament period has begun. So, um, uh, Should the Jewish Apocrypha be... Now I'm all balmed up, I'm ready to go. Should the Jewish Apocrypha be added to the Old Testament canon? Apocrypha... Uh, what's up, Jesse? Good to see you, man. Um... Apocrypha speaks of a hidden group of books written between the Testaments whose material has often been considered secret or hidden. Okay, so Apocrypha means hidden. 
some arguments against it. And with the arguments against it, you don't need the arguments for it, okay? Because <laughs> they're that big argument of arguments, okay? Um, arguments against adding some or all of the Apocrypha. The, uh, ma- the vast majority of Hebrew scholars considered the Apocrypha to be good historical and religious documents, but not on the same level as the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, so good historical or religious documents, but not on the same level as the, the scriptures. There are actually factual contradictions between the Apocrypha and the scriptures. For example, Baruch reports that Jeremiah was taken to Babylon while scripture affirms he did not go to Babylon, but was actually forced to go to Egypt. The book of Sirach teaches that honoring parents and almsgiving makes atonement for sin. It says, Whoso honoreth his father maketh an atonement for his sins. Water will quench a flaming fire, and alms maketh an atonement for sin. That's what you guys should be saying. Like, what? Yeah, throw that in the Bible. Okay. Uh, similarly, Tobit 12.9 states that alms doth deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. Now, who do you think is an advocate of having the uh, Apocrypha in the canon? The Pope, Catholic Church, right? Uh, the Book of Wisdom teaches that one is not born with a sinful nature. Wisdom 8.19 and 20 says, For I was a witty child and had a good spirit, Yea, rather, being good, I came into a body undefiled. Sounds like some of your kids. <laughs> Sounds like an Olker's boy, if I'm right. Now, the Apocrypha or Deuterocanicals, do you guys have that part? Okay, uh, this is just a little something I added today. Uh, Apocrypha slash Deuterocanicals. <laughs> Use that in Hangman next time you're playing. Deuterocanonicals. <laughs> Support some of the things that the Roman, and that means second canon, by the way. It's like another another canon. The Apocrypha or Deuterocanonicals support some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church believes and practices which are not in agreement with the Bible. Examples are praying to the dead, petitioning, saints in heaven for their prayers, worshiping angels, and almsgiving as atoning for sin. Uh, Another reason why we don't have it in our canon is because it's never quoted in the New Testament as authoritative. It's true, and Will and I were talking about it this weekend, it's true that there is one example of an apocryphal book being quoted by Jude. Jude quotes Enoch 1.9 when he says in Jude 1.14-15, Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these, these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of, their, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, now, he quotes Enoch there. Enoch was a, a holy man who walked with the Lord and was raptured before the flood, you remember. So uh, what Enoch said was good. It was true. It was right. Uh, probably even like some prophecy that he was speaking forth. Um, but the rest of the book wasn't necessarily inspired either. Now, 
Another example would be Paul quoting Epimenides in Titus. Since the apocryphal books have not seriously been considered as canonical, this one usage of Enoch is seen as parallel to Paul quoting Epimenides in Titus 1.12, when Paul says, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So uh, this should not be seen as justifying the inclusion of one Enoch into the canon as inspired. Uh, the next reason that we don't have the Apocrypha is that the Jews, those custodians of the scripture who'd been committed the oracles of God, never accepted the Apocrypha as canonical. Next, the nine apocryphal books accepted by the Roman Catholic Church were accepted late for political reasons against the Protestants. The Council of Trent, which met from 1545 to 1547, declared these books canonical, likely out of reaction to the Protestant Reformation, which hailed only the original canon as authoritative. Protestant reformers would cry out, Sola Scriptura, which means by scripture alone. It's the assertion that the Bible as God's written word is self-authenticating. It's clear to the rational reader. Its own inter interpreter is scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. And it's sufficient of itself to be the final authority of Christian doctrine. Sola Scriptura. Let's start saying that, okay? When we're in our core groups and we're in our 242 groups and we're conversing and people start throwing out their opinions, someone bust it out, all right? Someone be Martin Luther. <laughs> Sola una momento. Okay, I don't know. What? <laughs> shut up. A scriptural way to say shut up. Okay. No, but <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, it is. It, and that's what they would say to the Catholics who were trying to kill them, you know, because they were saying, let's go back to the word. And they were being told not to. In fact, um, I didn't get to it tonight in my notes because it would have taken too long. But Martin Luther and his uh, big stand against the, it, the, the uh, was it Council of uh, Worms, I think, is what it was. Uh, he cried this out, and then he spoke this great kind of final closing. And he was like, and may God have mercy on my soul if you want anything else than that, you know. But uh, it really was the way, it's like the final thing. Like, when you're arguing with someone, it's like, let's get back to the word. Let's get back to the word. Um, some of what the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonicals says is true and correct, like Enoch's quote. However, due to the historical and theological errors, the books must be viewed as fallible historical and religious documents, not as inspired, authoritative word of God. Okay. That's the Apocrypha. Why a New Testament canon now? Here's some factors that gave rise to the New Testament canon. First of all, they were prophetic writings. Since they were written by an apostle or prophet of God, they must be valuable and should be preserved. This reason is seen in apostolic times 
by the collection and circulation of Paul's epistles. They were collected, they were circulated. Next thing that brought about a New Testament canon was the death of the eyewitnesses. As the guys were dying off, the demand for accurate accounts being preserved was high. The rise of heresies created the need to distinguish the truth of God from the false. The rise of heresies. The making of a false canonical list by some heretics required true lists to be written. The increase of many writings, or many Christian writings, made it necessary to distinguish the merely helpful from the truly authoritative. So we need to distinguish between Spurgeon's morning and evening devotions and Erwin Lutzer's matters of life and death and uh, How to Be Born Again by Billy Graham and you know all these different books or Chicken Soup for the Soul or whatever you know it's like what's authority and what's just a good read you know or what's a useful read what's authoritative We can go down to uh, Life Song Bookstore and find a lot of great books. Why, why aren't they in the Bible too, the question would be. Well, there was a canon. There's something that's the standard. The existence of a complete Old Testament canon made the formation of the New Testament canon a legitimate and logical step. This may or may not be my last canon reference. <laughs> All right, so there was an Old Testament canon Guys are dying off, heresies are rising. We need a New Testament canon as well. Persecution. With the edict of Diocletian in 303 AD, calling for the destruction of the sacred books of the Christians, within the early centuries of the church, Christians were sometimes put to death for just possessing copies of the scripture. So who would die for a book that was perhaps just a religious book, but not sacred, not authority? Persecution in the early church made it essential to divine, define the body of truth for which one would be willing to die. Missions. Christian, Christianity had spread rapidly to other countries. And there was the need to translate the Bible into those other languages. Josh McDowell says in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, as early as the first half of the second century, the Bible was translated into Syriac and Old Latin. But because missionaries could not translate a Bible that could not exist, attention was necessarily drawn to the question of which books really belong to the authoritative Christian canon. Here's a timeline of some primary historical events. In the second century, there existed a general agreement very early on that most New Testament books were divinely authoritative. All four of the Gospels, Acts, 13 Pauline epistles, 1 Peter and 1 John were all unanimously accepted in the Eastern Church. 
All right, so early on, there was agreement on authority. But uh, in 140 AD, we have Marcion, a Gnostic heretic. He was like a Jehovah's Witness. It's very similar doctrine. Marcion. You guys missing something? M-A-R-C-I-O-N. 140. So this uh, basic Jehovah's Witness makes an inadequate canonical list. He compiled the first canonical list. It was not orthodox, but it reflected a Gnostic anti-Jewish approach that included only portions of Luke and 10 of Paul's epistles. In the third century, Eusebius, the historian, E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S, Eusebius, or Eusebius, the historian, wrote the attitude toward the writings fell into two categories. The first one, homologuamena, or the undisputed books. The undisputed books included the four Gospels, Acts, 13 Pauline epistles, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Hebrews, maybe Revelation. And then you had the antilogomena, or the questioned books. This included James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John, which were disputed by some. And then the heretical books, which none of the New Testament books that we have now were included in that list. In the 4th century, we have Athanasius. Athanasius. He was the Egyptian church father and theologian from the 4th century. He issued an Easter letter in 367 AD to his people in which he listed the present canon, no more and no less, and he called them springs of salvation. It's kind of an exciting part of church history is Athanasius's Easter letter where all our books that we have in our Bible no more, no less, are called springs of salvation. And just before that, there were some significant church councils. The church council of Laodicea was in AD 363. Laodicea affirmed our present New Testament canon, except for the book of Revelation. Does anybody know why? Because they got rebuked by Jesus. <laughs> Could you imagine? You're like, well, we like all of them except for this one, right? And who wrote the book of Revelation? John the Revelator, man. The, the one that Jesus loved. And they were like, nope, not this one. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, the significant church council of Hippo. AD 393. It was a lesser council but the first to affirm the present New Testament canon, Hippo. And then Carthage, AD 397. Carthage was a major council in which all books were recognized as canonical. So uh, about 300 and what, 340 years after Christ, there was the total recognized canon of scripture. F.F. F. Bruce writes this. Oops, I don't have it in my 
slides. I thought I did. Let me check, though. Oh, yeah, I do. Just skipped it accidentally. When at last a church council, the Synod of Hippo, listed the 27 books of the New Testament, it did not confer upon them any authority which they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity. The rulings of the Synod of Hippo was made public again four years later by the Third Synod of Carthage. Since this time, there's been no serious questioning of the 27 accepted books of the New Testament by Roman Catholics, Protestants, or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, a little bit of church history that's not in your notes. Uh, The age of medieval Catholicism became so dark that when Sergius III became Pope in 904 to 967, he ushered in what history calls the rule of harlots, during which time his mistress publicly accompanied him to the Pope's palace. Sergio's grandson, John X, continued his legacy as a Pope until he was actually killed in his bedroom while committing adultery. Next came Benedict IX, who assumed the papacy at age 12 through the act of simony, which was selling positions within the church to the highest bidder. Benedict IX became so corrupt that the citizens of Rome drove him out of the city, replacing him with Clement III, who was appointed by Henry III. Clement III was not a Roman because in the words of King Henry III, I will appoint no one from Rome because no priest can be found in this city who is free from the pollution of fornication and simony. So that's where the church was at by 900, okay? That's the church, okay? That's the church that we're supposed to be a part of according to the guy up on the hill, okay? And so that began to birth what's called the Reformation in church history. And I hope that we'll have time in the spring to do like a deep church history class. Um, but, uh, but what was happening beyond the simony and the fornication was everything that we listed earlier that's in the Apocrypha, okay? Uh, things like uh, the selling of alms and indulgences and trying to buy your loved one out of hell. And you guys know the old saying, every time, there's a, a, every time a coin in the coffer sings, a soul from Sheol springs, okay? Or you'd buy these prayer candles and you'd light them and, and it would bring your uh, loved one out of purgatory, okay? Um, You have uh, the ex-cathedra of the Pope. You have the praying to the saints. You have a more modern Catholic uh, doctrine that is, uh, you know, the co-redemptress Mary, uh, how she also has paid for our sins through her suffering, um, it just goes on and on and on, you know, the relics and the buying and selling of relics and the idolatry there, on and on and on. And so all of this was giving birth to God purifying his church through the Reformation period, okay? And uh, when we're talking tonight about the canic, can, the canon, we want to get specific about how the word of God uh, began being uh, craved among the church, Uh, Back in the day, the Latin Vulgate was the only thing that was uh, allowed, and it was only allowed to be read by the priests, uh, the Catholic priests. And so um, the Holy Spirit began to simmer in the hearts of individuals to 
bust out of that. And one of the first men that we have that did that was a man named uh, John Wycliffe in 1330. He's the first guy top left there. Uh, John Wycliffe was born in England. He was an Oxford scholar. He wrote about getting away from the Pope's teachings. John Wycliffe urged the people to return to the Bible and advocated having it translated into the common language in response to his questioning of Catholic doctrine. This began the Reformation. Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. He was martyred and his works were burned. Later, his bones were dug back up 18 years after his death. His bones were dug back up at the order of an infuriated Pope and they were then burned, crushed into powder and poured into the river Swift. Okay, so uh, some people really didn't want us to have our own Bibles in our own language that we could read and understand. Okay, um, a contemporary of Wycliffe, and by the way, Wycliffe is a missions organization now that uh, they are Bible translators, and uh, their goal is to get the scriptures into every tribe, nation, and tongue, and that's their mission. And who do I know recently who is working for Wycliffe? There's a gal from Corvallis I went to high school with. She uh, is in Pakistan uh, translating the Bible, and uh, she was across the street from Osama bin Laden the day before he was shot. Um, at, uh, she was at her house in the compound, or it was a house she was in, compound was across the street. Someone else, anyone know who that is? Someone who just told me they're working with Wycliffe. Was it in Primeville? Nobody knows? Yeah, it was your parents, yeah. <laughs> Woo! I was like, surely that person's in the school of ministry, right? <laughs> Woo! Yeah, uh, who, now who is that, your dad and your mom both? Wow. What did they do, like... Is that exciting or what? Woo! Cool. Uh, so that's Wycliffe, right? John Huss was a, uh, a contemporary. And by the way, I didn't print this out because it would have given you like tons of pages of notes and kind of we're on a budget a little bit with our paper supply <laughs> since the school is free. Um, but uh, just feel free to take notes on this and I could email you it. John Huss was a Czechoslovakian reformer, a Czech reformer who lived before Luther, Calvin, or Zwingli, uh, who we'll talk about in a second, all those guys. Huss urged the Czech people to start reading their Bible on their own in the opposition of the tyranny of the Roman church that threatened anyone possessing a non-Latin Bible with execution. Huss was burned at the stake with Wycliffe's manuscripts used as the kindling for the fire. At the same council of Constance, he was killed, which Wycliffe was killed at the council of Constance. Less than a month later, Huss was killed at the same council with uh, the manuscripts of Wycliffe used as the kindling for the fire. The last words of John Huss were, in a hundred years, God will raise up a man who calls for, whose call for reform cannot be ignored. And in a hundred years, almost exactly a hundred years, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Thesis of Contention, which was a list of 95 issues of heretical theology, theology 
and crimes of the Roman Catholic Church, he nails the 95 Thesis into the church door at Wittenberg. This prophecy of John Huss had come true. Martin Luther went on to be the first person to translate and publish the Bible in the commonly spoken dialect of the German people. A translation more appealing than the earlier German biblical translation. Fox's Book of Martyrs records that in the same year, 1517, seven people were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for their crime of teaching their children to say the Lord's Prayer in English rather than Latin. Martin Luther who we were just speaking of, in 1502 was a lawyer until he was caught in a thunderstorm. It terrified him so bad that he cried out to St. Anne, if you save me from this lightning, I will become a monk. He was saved, went on to seminary, got his doctorate in two years, and went deeper and deeper because he couldn't handle legalism. He would beat himself with a whip, sleep outside in the freezing weather, trying to beat his flesh into submission. He journeyed to Rome, hoping to find some sort of absolution and got sick with a fever, so he had to turn in and stay with some monks. They said, Martin, read Habakkuk. It hit him like lightning as he read, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The words resonated in his ears and in his heart until he made it to Rome, where they brought the stairs over from Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. They brought him to Rome, and you would ascend the steps that Jesus bled on before Pontius Pilate, kissing every stair before you went uh, to visit the Pope, you would kiss every step. And as he kissed, he went, the, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Halfway up the stairs, he said, what am I doing? I'm living by works. And he turned around and went home. And the Reformation began through Martin Luther. He nailing in 1517, nailed the 95 Thesis to the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 20 years later, the Pope called him to the Diet of Worms in 1584, uh, where the Pope called for him to retract or die. After that, the Jesuits were raised up to support the Pope no matter what. This led to the Inquisition in Spain. Each one of these men made it possible for the Bible to be translated into his own language. Ulrich Zwingli was a Swiss reformer, and he was, uh, let's see, so we've got um, Wycliffe, Huss, Martin Luther, uh, big jawed guy over here is uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, Czech reformer, William Tyndale, bottom left, this is exciting for us, he's the father of the English Bible, he's been called the captain of the army of reformers, and was a spiritual leader in England. Tyndale holds the distinction of being the first man ever to print the New Testament in the English language. Tyndale was a true scholar and a genius, so fluent in eight languages, it was said uh, one would think any one of them to be his native tongue. He is frequently referred to as the architect of the English language, even more so than William Shakespeare, as so many of the phrases Tyndale coined are still in our language today. He was an Oxford scholar, uh, and while he had a number of partial and incomplete translation uh, had been made from the 7th century onward, there was a grassroots spread of of Wycliffe's uh, Bible, resulted in a death sentence for any unlicensed possession of scripture in English, even though the translation uh, was in all other major European languages, uh, they were available. So I know that's a little... Uh, a little choppy there, sorry about that. 
Tyndale's translation was the first English Bible to draw directly from Hebrew and Greek texts. The first English one to take advantage of the printing press. The first of the new English Bibles of the Reformation. They were burned, Tyndale's publishes, were burned as soon as the bishop could confiscate them, but copies trickled through and eventually ended up in the bedroom of King Henry VIII. The more the king and the bishop resisted its distribution, the more fascinated the public at large became. The church declared it contained thousand, uh, de- the church declared it contained thousands of errors as they torched hundreds of the New Testaments confiscated by the clergy, while in fact they burned them because they could find no errors at all. One risked death by burning if caught in mere possession of Tyndale's forbidden books. In 1535, Tyndale was arrested and jailed in the castle at Filford outside Brussels for over a year. In 1536, he was convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation, after which his body was burned at the stake. His dying request was that the king of England's eyes would be opened. This seemed to find its fulfillment just two years later when Henry's authorization of the great Bible for the Church of England, which was was largely Tyndale's own work, uh, was ordered to be printed. Hence, the Tyndale Bible, as it was known, continued to play a key role in spreading Reformation ideas across the English-speaking world and eventually on the global British Empire. His version worked prominently into the Geneva Bible, um, which is uh, 95% the same as uh, the King James Bible, which was taken to the New World in Jamestown, Virginia in 1607 and on the Mayflower in 1620. Uh, We then have John Knox, who was a Scottish reformer, founder of the Presbyterian denomination in Scotland. He cried out, give me my country or I die. So this is just a little bit of the the show for the passion in printing the scriptures into our own language. Uh, When you think of what these men went through so that we could be here tonight and have it in English and in different translations of the English. So for some, it would be easier to read just think of what we have in our hands and think of why the enemy would want to have it stopped, you know? Uh, so let's read it. Let's spread it, this great book. So uh, that was just a little break in our canonization test. It goes on to what we'll study in a little bit, which is translations. Um, <clears throat> there's some tests that I want to give you for canonization, some things that we can look at to say, all right, how was this all determined anyways? How was it recognized as authoritative? And it, you'll, you'll find me correcting myself because we didn't determine anything. We recognize, recognize authority. Yeah, uh, this is old and new. Okay. Uh, the test for canonization. First of all, authority. Authority. Does the book claim to be God's word? inspired, or divinely given? Does it claim that? Secondly, apostolicity. (laughs) Apostolicity. Was it written by or under the supervision of an apostle or a prophet? We're talking Old Testament. Thirdly, Spirituality. Oh, looks like I missed a slide. 
Spirituality. No, no, no. Accuracy. Sorry. Thirdly is accuracy. Not spirituality. I jumped one. Sorry, geez. Where's the grace you preach so much about? Uh, the next one is spirituality. We're not there yet. I skipped it. Right. The third is accuracy. Yeah. Apostolicity. Oh, okay. So I totally skipped. Right. Thank you guys. Forgive me. Will you guys forgive me? Just vocalize it. Martinez. <laughs> yeah. Was the right. Okay. So this is back at apostolicity. Was it written by or under the supervision of an apostle or prophet? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Frequently, miracles separated the true prophets from the false ones. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So, acts of God, following the apostle or prophet. Now we go to, thanks everybody, accuracy. Is it consistent with the rest of scripture? Is it consistent with the rest of scripture? And you could even say, well, you could, but I'm not going to. Never mind. Thank you. Let's be accurate with it. Fourthly, spirituality. Is it active and powerful, leading the reader to conviction? Edification? Uh, so spirituality, or how about I just say it again? Spirituality, is it active and powerful leading the reader to conviction? Edification? And evangelism? Yeah, did it bring fruit is really the... The thing there, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And uh, fifthly, acceptance. Is, it accept, is its acceptance general, widespread, and sustained by many godly churches and individuals? As 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, I think I need to move down on the slide here. Spirituality, no wonder. I didn't have these things for you guys. Got a little excited. As 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the words of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so just that passage in 1 Thessalonians is like a, a Pauline note on canonicity, you know, something that is true, something that is uh, effectively working. The closing of the New Testament canon, the period of New Testament revelation has ceased. The beginning of the New Testament period of revelation began when, the, when John the Baptist started proclaiming the kingdom 
and we studied that in Luke. Jesus anticipates the completion of this new period of revelation during his upper room discourse. In John 14, 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John 16, 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. The revelation ended with the last apostle. Both of these references are directly intended for the 11 apostles, although by application they apply to us as well. Thus, for his promise to be fulfilled, the all truth into which the apostles will be led must be revealed and available at least by the death of the last apostle, John who died around 100 AD. The New Testament canon is complete. All necessary revelation given during the period is in our current canon. Our conclusion, the scriptures are sufficient and adequate for all of faith and practice. The scriptures are sufficient and adequate for all of faith and practice. It is through these scriptures that we have the standard for truth. If doctrine, teachings, practices, traditions, and lifestyles do not conform to the Bible, not vice versa, there needs to be repentance. We should not seek to avoid them, but rather we should seek to, seek to understand and obey what we have. We're going to talk real quick on uh, preservation I believe this is in your notes, preservation of the canon. When we speak of inspiration, we're referring only to the process by which the original documents were composed. After that, the doctrine of the preservation of the Bible takes over. If God went to such great lengths to give us the word, surely he would also take steps to preserve the word unchanged. What we see in history is what God exactly did that. The Old Testament Hebrew scriptures were painstakingly copied by Jewish scribes. Groups such as the Sopharim, the Zugoth, the Tenaim, and the Masoretes had a deep reverence for the texts they were copying. Their reverence was coupled with strict rules governing their work, the types of parchment used, the size of the columns, the kind of ink, and the spacing of the words was all prescribed. Writing anything from memory was expressly forbidden, and the lines, words, and even the individual letters were methodically counted as a means of double-checking accuracy. The result of all this was that the words written by Isaiah's pen are still available today. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls clearly confirms the precision of the Hebrew text. Discuss real quick the Dead Sea Scrolls. Over in Israel, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, is a community called Qumran, and this little shepherd boy was out around these caves all around Qumran. You can see them to this day. And in 1947, I think it was, he's out there and he's trying to scare his sheep down off some of the cliffs. And as he's throwing rocks, a rock goes into a cave and he hears the sound of pottery break. And so he goes in there to investigate what had broken. And what he finds are jars full of scrolls wrapped in leather and wrapped in cloth uh, that date back a couple thousand years ago. And, uh, and so uh, he basically grabbed him and was going to use the leather to make some sandals. And he takes it into town and has his dad taken in. His dad sensed that these scrolls were something more. 
And uh, as they did a search around all the other caves, they found what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which uh, were portions of every book uh, of the Old Testament canon that we have. And they were very, very accurate. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls give us confidence in the reliability of the Old Testament manuscripts since there were minimal differences between the manuscripts that had previously been discovered and those that were found in Qumran. Clearly, this is the testament to the way God has preserved his word down through the centuries, protecting it from extinction and guarding it against significant error. The same is true for the New Testament Greek texts. Thousands of Greek texts, some dating back to nearly AD 117, are available for us. The slight variations among the texts, not, uh, not one of which affects articles of faith, are easily reconciled. Scholars have concluded that the New Testament we have at present is virtually unchanged from the original writings, which reminds me of Robert Dick Wilson that we studied last week, who like memorized you know, at all, basically. And he's like, you don't need to worry about anything. Textual scholar Sir Frederick Kenyon said about the Bible, it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. So preservation. Then we'll talk about real quickly, translation. Translation. Trans. Translation. Okay, for some reason it did that. Translation. Translation is an interpretative process to some extent. When translating from one language to another, choices must be made. Should it be the more exact word, even if the meaning of the word is unclear to the modern reader? Or should it be a corresponding thought at the expense of a more literal meaning? Three kinds of biblical Bible translations here. First of all, Formal equivalence, formal equivalence. A formal equivalent Bible seeks the most precise rendering of each word and of sentence structure of the original into the receptor language. Formal equivalence often brings about a stiffer translation, but provides a more precise presentation of the original language and manuscript. Manuscripts, excuse me. Secondly, you have the dynamic equivalence. Its intent is to seek the closest natural equivalent in a receptor language, idea for idea rather than word for word. This grants more latitude to the translator to create a smoother idiom or a smoother speech in the receptor language. But precision can be lost. Then we have the paraphrase. This is where the interest is primarily getting the concept across. There's a greater latitude in the translation for the sake of understanding for the reader. A couple different types of Bibles that we have here. Um, We have the NASB, which would be uh, formal equivalence. And uh, don't worry about this yet. I'll maybe do a little explaining. Uh, Formal equivalence. Uh, So that means that the NASB version of the Bible, the New American Standard Bible, is it's just trying to go back to the original uh, manuscripts. In fact, NASB, it's on the top left. It's like four down. It was made in 1971. That's not true. NASB, oh, it was revised. It was actually 1901. Um, But uh, it, American Standard, yeah, 1901. So there it is below that line there. 
Um, it is trying to be almost exactly the original manuscript, like word for word, even though it wouldn't make much sense to us in our English language. That's why it's a little bit harder to read. Um, NASB, the Americans responded to England's ERV Bible by publishing the nearly identical American Standard Version in 1901. It was also widely accepted and embraced by churches throughout America for many decades as the leading modern English version of the Bible. In 1971, it was again revised and called the New American Standard Version Bible. This New American Standard Bible is considered by nearly all evangelical Christian scholars and translators today to be the most accurate word-for-word translation of the original Greek and Hebrew scriptures into the modern English language that's ever been produced. It remains the most popular version among theologians, professors, scholars, and seminary students today. Aaron reads from the NASB, or ESV, but mostly NASB, if I know my Aaron, and I think I do. (laughs) Some, however, have taken issue with it because it is so direct and literal, a translation focused on accuracy that it does not flow as easily in a conversational English, like Aaron. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You're in his core group, aren't you? Dang it. Then we have the King James Version, which is also formal equivalence. With the death of Queen Elizabeth I, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. The Protestant clergy approached the new king in 1604 and announced their desire for a new translation to replace the Bishop's Bible, first printed in 1568. They knew that the Geneva Version had won the hearts of the people because of its excellent scholarship, accuracy, and exhaustive commentary. However, they did not want the controversial marginal notes proclaiming the Pope the Antichrist to be in there. Essentially, the leaders of the church desired a Bible for the people with scriptural references only for word clarification or cross-references. This translation to end all translations, for a while at least, was the result of the combined efforts of about 50 scholars. They took into consideration the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and even the Rhymes New Testament. The great revision of the Bishop's Bible had begun. From 1605 to 1606, the scholars engaged in private research. From 1607 to 1609, the work was ensembled. In 1610, the work went to press, and in 1611, the first of the huge 16-inch tall pulpit folios, known today as the 1611 King James Bible, came off the printing press. A typographical discrepancy in Ruth 13.15 rendered a pronoun he instead of she in that verse in some printings. This caused some of the 1611 first editions to be known as collectors as he Bibles and others as she Bibles. Starting just one year after the huge 1611 pulpit-sized King James Bibles were printed and chained to every church pulpit in England, printing then began on the earliest normal-sized printings of the King James Bible. These were produced so individuals could have their own personal copy of the Bible. New King James Version. Uh, I think I forgot to hit enter there, sorry. Uh, New King James Version would be uh, also formal with revisions towards dynamic type of translation to make it a little easier to read. It was in 1982, the original intent of the New King James Version, which is what uh, I preach out of and most Calvary Chapel guys preach out of. uh, Their intent was to keep the basic wording of the King James to appeal to King James Version loyalists while only changing the most obscure words in the Elizabethan thee, thy, thou pronouns, okay? Uh, ESV is very close to the New King James Version. It's more modern in 2002. It has a formal dynamic component to it. 
A major attempt was made to bridge the gap between the simple readability of the NIV and the extremely precise accuracy of the NASB. This translation is called the English Standard Version and is rapidly gaining popularity for its readability and accuracy. It's what our elders use. I love it as well. And uh, John Piper and Alistair Begg were on the, the board of uh, that. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, NIV, you can read that on your own, you know, how it was formed. Just wanted to give you guys some of that. Uh, but the New American Standard in the King James Version would be to the far end of the formal equivalent side, while paraphrases such as the Living Bible and the Message or the J.B. Phillips paraphrase would be on this end. Uh, you also want to look at who's translating it and the board that's over that. For instance, uh, I've got issues with the Message Bible uh, with Peterson and, and some of his theology, and so I steer clear of the Message now. Uh, but some guys that I love still quote him. So, um, But I do love... The Phillips paraphrases, you hear me quoting it all the time uh, because of the history of it and uh, in evangelizing England, as well as the New Living Translation. Uh, William Tyndale fought and died for the right to print the Bible in the common spoken modern English tongue of his day, as he boldly told one official who criticized his efforts, if God spare my life, I will see to it that the boy who drives the plowshare knows more of the scripture than you, sir. Um, a good technique to have, you can look at the, uh, well, you probably have different pages. It says here, a good technique is to have a set of scripture verses you know well and look at those verses up in a translation you are unsure of. A good idea is to look at some of the most common verses that speak of the deity of Christ to make sure a Bible translation is true to the word of God. Despite the multitude of English Bible translations, we can be confident that God's word is truth and that it will accomplish its purpose. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.